All right, let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Saturday of our Pentecost Festival. You will notice that this afternoon, my smile is real. Dr. Garcia is here. Hooray. And yes, Stephanie, I realize they're glad it's Dr. Garcia. They're not glad it's not me. I get it. Okay. Uh, Dr. Garcia is an OPC minister, a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, president of Greystone Theological Institute, and therefore a good friend of mine from my time with Greystone. Uh, it's a joy to have him here. I'll say a few more things at a later session, but for now I'd like to welcome Dr. Garcia. of which I'm now the expert. And if you have any questions about what's in every nook and cranny of Terminal C, we can help you out. Is that okay? You can hear me? Ah, uh, very good. Yeah, I can, I can hear myself, what's that? I am so delighted to be back with you um, if there is an honor, hey Randy, <laughs> if there is an honor, and there certainly is in being invited at all, and boy did we ever have a wonderful time last year, and talked about it all year since, um, to, be honored, uh, to be honored by a, a repeat invitation is really uh, something that's profoundly moving for me. Um, you're my people, and I love seeing you again. I've missed being with you. And I've been looking forward to this since it became clear this might be a possibility. Um, thank you for your warm welcome in the last three minutes, which we've already enjoyed. And my understanding is that Nick Smith was able yesterday just to ask ChatGPT what I would say. <laughs> what would Mark Garcia say on this topic? Um, I'm a little scared that's how he creates his sermons, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, thank you again for your warm welcome. Uh, and I'm going to take a bit of liberty, if that's okay. Um, and I mean, I'm doing what I'm told, so there's that in my defense. But I'm going to speak on a topic that uh, here and there is going to feel like there must be um, a soapbox beneath my feet. And that I am not only trying to be useful, but I'm trying to be useful and before the Lord, this is true, uh, in a way that at times will feel like I'm going for the jugular of what um, not only the world at large seems to take for granted as true, but frankly, sometimes and sadly, tragically so, sometimes even within the church, we can be led astray. Uh, and yet on a topic which is arguably among the most elemental and fundamental of all things Christians are concerned to be very clear about, and that is the meaning of human life before the face and presence of our maker and for his glory and the place in that question of being a man or a woman male or a female um, what does it mean what doesn't it mean and why does this matter not just for getting things right on your theology exam why does it matter in the way you live every single day and especially uh, as you pray for and aspire to faithfulness within the context of the church does this make any material difference to what it means to be at all a human person made in the image of God and to be called as the worshiping people of the living God? I'm going to try to suggest some ways in which, in fact, biblically, 
this is among the most elemental, fundamental, essential things Christians believe. At the same time, I am not going to suggest it's all easy. Something can be simple without being easy. Um, this is one of those things. And sometimes the complications are our own fault. We, we kind of bring a lot of stuff in that doesn't quite belong, and then we have to clear the table to remember what this is supposed to be in the first place. So I'm here doing in two talks what I didn't think I could do in three. And don't worry, I'm not going to keep you for four hours this afternoon. I've been given a strict terminus. I'm going to observe it. Um, what I'm going to do, by God's grace, Lord willing, is try to be useful by walking us through one idea unfolded over two sessions, which is what we have for us today. All right? One idea unfolded over two sessions. The break will come when the break comes, and we'll just pick up where we left off in session two, if that's okay for today, and finish this thought. But I'd like you to think of it in these terms, unfolding one thought, one idea, one thing, rather than what might at times feel like a thousand things. One thing unfolded, all right? And this is very much along the lines of what does it mean if we were to take the biblical world as the real world, and not just some religious suggestion. If we were to take it as the real world, and by faith embrace this as the real world, for all of its mystery, what would it mean then to understand ourselves properly as either a man or a woman? What is brought into view? What remains uh, very much mysterious? H.L. Mencken, if you haven't read him, you should read him sometime. What a writer, uh, 20th century writer, not a friend of Christianity, um, but really quite perceptive in recognizing what was going on in the church and in Christianity. When he was speaking at the beginning of the 20th century about what he called the blushful mystery, the blushful mystery of um, uh, sexual relations, sexual practice, he ridiculed what in his day was already a preoccupation with scientific explanations for human sexuality. He referred to all of these hygiene volumes about how to relate to one another well and make each other happy. And he pointed out that they are blinded by a pedagogical, a teaching error. That is to say, he wrote, they are all founded upon an attempt to explain a romantic mystery in terms of an exact science. Nothing could be more absurd, he said as well attempt to interpret Beethoven in terms of mathematical physics, as many a famous contrapuntist indeed has tried to do. The mystery of sex, he says, presents itself to the young, not as a scientific problem to be solved, but as a romantic exception, emotion rather, to be accounted for. The only result of the current endeavor to explain its phenomena by seeking parallels in botany is to make botany obscene not to help us, in fact, understand what we are as male and female. As an example of this ridiculous modern preoccupation Mencken was concerned about, when scientists on the 16th of November, 1974, broadcast a coded message into outer space, uh, ostensibly to communicate with possible extraterrestrials, which incidentally are actually in the basement of the Denver airport, in keeping with all conspiracies, the message that they sent consisted of 1,679 binary digits organized into seven parts that encoded information regarding numbers and a graphic 
image of the solar system, uh, a graphic of their own radio telescope. I always thought it was hilarious that they included an image of the solar system for extraterrestrials. By the way, this is what your world looks like. But the message also included information or communication that identified the human species. The broadcast sent explanations of DNA and a graphic figure of a human person using the dimensions of an average man. It is theologically significant in a sad, sobering, even tragic way that when explaining what a human person is, these scientists explained us, explained what we really are as essentially nucleotides and physical dimensions. There was no sense of the mystery of the human creature as God has made us, no sense of the wonder of being created as more than DNA, but in the image of the very God. What I'd like to do with the time we have today is start with a decalogue of sorts. We like decalogues in the Reformed Church. Hopefully all churches like decalogues as well, at least one especially. We're going to provide ten words, ten statements, ten points, a decalogue, about how male and female fit within the biblical real world and within the terms of the Christian faith. And then we're going to go from those ten points into the question, what then does it mean to act just like a man and shake your head, just like a woman and and shake your head. What does this mean in biblical terms to be masculine, to be feminine, especially as informed by these 10? All right. Now, giving you 10 also helps you gain a a sense of momentum. All right. He's almost halfway done. All right. He's he's three-fourths of the way done now. The end is in sight. Let's start with number one, shall we? 10 words. We'll start with number one. And in good Christian fashion, we're going to start where all good Christian thinking starts. And that's with the doctrine of the Trinity. So our very first point, the God of the Christian faith, the God of Holy Scripture, is the triune God, who is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the only real distinction among these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, The one and only thing that makes each person who that person is is what we would call a relation of origin. Relation of origin. Nothing else. Relation of origin. What do we mean? Well, we mean by this the Father eternally begets, you know that old word, or eternally generates the Son. And this is what makes him the Father, not the Son and not the Spirit. That the Father eternally generates the Son the Son. That's what we mean by calling him Father. The Son is the eternally generated one, eternally begotten one. And this is what makes him the Son and not the Father, the Son and not the Spirit. All right? And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or is spirated by the Father and the Son. This is what makes the Spirit, not the Father, and not the Son. Father eternally generates. Spirit eternally is generated. Father and Son eternally send the Spirit. The Spirit is eternally proceeding from Father and Son. Relations of origin alone distinguish the Trinitarian persons. You're thinking, now, where, what happened to male-female? 
we were going to talk about the fun stuff of being a man or being a woman, masculinity and all that. Well, hold on with me. Persevere with me a little while longer, but keep point one in mind. It's point one for a reason. Point two. Point two. The nature of their relations as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The nature of their relations as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the dynamic bond of perfect, eternal, and therefore timeless, fecund, which is to say always potentially and really fruitful, love. All right? The nature of their relations as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the dynamic bond of perfect, eternal, and therefore timeless, fruitful or fecund love. Love is it, but love with all those adjectives. The Father who generates, as we just said in point one, the Father who generates the Son does this in perfect, fruitful love. The Son who receives from the Father does so in love. The Father and the Son uh, from whom the Spirit proceeds spirate that Spirit in love. There's love in the generating, there's love in the receiving, there's love in the spirating. That's point two. Aren't you feeling optimistic now about what I'm going to wrap up? Number three. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, therefore, exist together in the perfection of infinite, divine, and one of my favorite words in theology, plenitude. Plenitude. Think of excess. Overflowing the banks. Um, just like our coffee maker almost did this morning in the picture. Almost overflowing the lid with good stuff. Right? Think of divine plenitude as the fullness which cannot be contained and is perpetually overflowing its boundaries. Divine plenitude. The Father and Son and Spirit exist together in the perfection of infinite divine plenitude, which is to say they are always giving, always receiving, always returning what is given in love. Love in the giving, love in the receiving, love in the returning that which was received, love going both directions, but not in a vicious circle, but in a life-giving one of ever-increasing plenitude and divine excess of life and fruitfulness. World without end, amen. On and on it goes. This back and forth of giving and receiving in which no, there, is, there is giving but never loss. There is receiving and never gain, but only the return which renders fruitful the original gift, far beyond its original giving. This back and forth of giving and receiving in infinitely fruitful love, we can characterize with a word you will love and know here at Christ Reformed. Liturgical. Liturgical. What do we mean by this? Of course, this has to do with worship, although it's the bigger reality worship belongs to. How does that relate to liturgy or the liturgical reality? Because in this back and forth and back again, we have the originator or inaugurator of the love offering, the gift. We have the recipient who is the glorifying fructifier of what was given, what was received. And in that return, renders it that much more fruitful. And that movement back that is fruitful is what we mean by glorifying. The recipient who is returning back to the giver, that return back glorifies, fructifies what was given and received. That's the ultimate ground of why the church's liturgical life 
especially every Lord's Day, consists in this basic rhythm, basic pattern. There's one who gives and the others who receive. And in returning to the giver, are glorifying, are, are, are rendering fruitful the gift, but especially the giver. All right, this is why the church's liturgical life has this basic, the worship services have this basic feature of a back and forth and back again. There's someone up here who says things, and then all of you, amen, with your response, which is not just words, but yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah, we're, we're, that's about us. We're all into this. That return renders the originating word and work more fruitful because it's been glorified. It's been glorified. All right, number four. Fitting language that we can use for this pattern is found right there in Scripture. It's also found in ancient traditions of the church's theology and practice. And this language, I suggest, can prevent us from many errors. And that's a talk we missed yesterday, but that's all right. This language we're about to suggest can, can keep us from a lot of problems in this area. This language is language of two fundamental, kind of like poles, two poles of the reality. Again, this dynamic liturgical reality of inauguration and then the glorification of response. And this language, it's Greek words because we do that. Greek words, arche, arche on the one hand, and doxa on the other. Now, doxa sounds a little more familiar, right? Doxology is a word of praise, a word of glorification. In fact, our word glory comes from doxa. Uh, to doxize would be to glorify. Doxa, glory, all right, that's on one end. On the front end was RK, maybe not quite as familiar, but think of hierarchy. Think of architectonic and architecture. What is architecture? Architecture is the art science of laying down the lines which results in the glorifying structure itself. All right? RK is the originating, inaugurating word or work. RK sets down the lines. RK speaks or does. Doxa receives and returns to glorify, to render fruitful. Now think just about that basic pattern. Here are two new words for today, our vocabulary words for a Saturday. RK and doxa. RK, beginning, leading word or work, inaugurator, and then doxa, glory, glorification, glorifying responder. And we're down through four now. Here's number five. Number five, the content. The content, we talked about the nature, the content of the love of the Father for the Son in the Spirit is exactly that. It's exactly this glorification of the Son, which comes by way of the Father's determination to glorify His Son by the formation in history of the bridal glory of the Son, which we call the church, because the Bible calls it the church. And this would be the body, the glorifying body of the Son. Now, where do we get this from? Among many places, especially John's Gospel. When Jesus is telling his disciples, not once or twice, but repeatedly, all that the Father has given me, they're going to come to me and will not be cast out. 
these and the ones whom the Father has given me, all that the Father has given me, over and over and over again, Jesus is reflecting back on the church, the content of the church, as the content of a gift given in love from the Father to the Son, being secured, gathered, formed in the ministry of the Spirit. The Father loves the Son, yes, but this is not a matter of mere sentiment. It looks like this, glorifying the Son by way of something that is not the Son, but intimately related to the Son, who would be the bridal glory of that Son. The Father loves the Son, and that's why there is anything rather than nothing. That's why God created it all. That's why there is you and me rather than an empty void. That's why there would be an empty void in the first place. God created something that is not himself precisely to form this body who would be the the perpetual glory of his son because he loves his son. And that's what it looks like for the father to love his son. Jesus tells us so. Paul tells us so in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. This is again the content of that love we've been talking about as the Father has for the Son and the Holy Spirit. This body, this body of this glorifying, bridal, city, church reality, which is exactly how the end of the Bible describes us in the book of Revelation, this body is the body of the Son, but not identical with the Son. United to the Son as his body. He is its head. But so intimate is this union, it's really of one reality of head and body. And the body of this glorifying bridal city church will glorify him by doing what? Well, what is the idea of glory anyway? What do we mean by that language? It means to put the reality of something that is positive on display. So creation glorifies God because in different ways it puts the character of God on display. That he is wise, that he is good, that he is holy. Uh, This bridal church city motherly reality described as such in the last chapters of Revelation glorifies the Son by putting the reality of the Son on wonderful display. Glorifying display. When you look at her you learn something of the glory he is of the wonder that he is because of that deep consonance between who she is visibly and vocally and who he is as the son to whom she is joined. So the, son, the, the body of the son will put the reality of the son on display glorifying him, but also will derive its own form as a body. Bodies have form, right? Will derive its own form as a body from the body of the son himself which is historical. And so the the contours of this body, which is his glory, will look a lot like and sound a lot like his body in history. With things like the story of Jesus being retold in the story of the church. Generally a movement from suffering to glory. From obedience to eternal life from humiliation to exaltation, and more particularly, in a cycle annually that looks a lot like the story of Jesus himself, like a Pentecost festival, like Advent and Christmas. 
the festal calendar has the form it does over the course of the year only because that is the form of Jesus himself and we're being led by the Spirit up and down the contours of that story year by year by year so that in our way of life in terms of time and space and our callings we're putting the reality of who he is always on display glorifying him. Number six. The end of history, the purpose of all things, in view from this deep Trinitarian beginning, is described in the last chapters of Revelation in its description of a consummate, everlasting form of the church as, again, that's bridal, motherly, city, kingdom reality, who is forever the glory, dynamically and fruitfully, of the true groom, husband, king, by putting the truth about him, his person and his work, his character, perpetually on display as a perpetual act of glorious praise forever. Number seven, because six was so brief. A little more on seven. Number seven, the end state of the church in view from the very beginning of things, in view from the very beginning of things, is therefore characterized as a body that includes men and women, but as a body is characterized in feminine terms. Bridal, motherly city. Where even the city is understood in feminine terms. This was in view, this is where it gets a little challenging for us. Let's think carefully about our Bibles. This is in view all the way back in the way Adam and Eve were made. And therefore reaches to the very beginnings of what we are as human persons, male and female. From creation itself and the formation of Adam and Eve in history as the human pairing which is the fountain of all humanity a people who would be gathered and formed in and through history to be the glory of the Son in the Spirit. The Spirit working in this body over time to conform her over and over more and more fully to the contours of the life and work of the Son so that we would enjoy our own ultimate happiness as the reason for our existence is satisfied, but also ultimately that we would be to the praise of His glory, as Paul tells us, in Ephesians. That end purpose for the body of the Son, for you and me in the church of Jesus Christ, that end purpose to be his fruitful glory is why in the world of Scripture itself there are these special roles for matriarchs and for other key mothers in Israel. From Sarah and Rachel to Hannah and the Proverbs 31 and Song of Songs women, as well as the strikingly feminine language for things like the land of promise, its wells and wellsprings. The holy city itself is figured routinely as a lady Zion and a mother Jerusalem. The church in Galatians 4 is described as the mother of us all. The mother of us all. All of these figures, all of these motifs are concentrated, hold on to your seat, 
are concentrated in a memorable, at least memorable way, in the accounts provided by Leviticus 12 and 15 of the uniquely woman's, not man's, woman's body in terms of her reproductive physiology. I'll be discreet, but follow. In Leviticus 12 and 15, the woman's 40 days of uncleanness in connection with childbirth and her seven days of uncleanness in connection with her monthly cycle are both feminine physiological realities. Yes. But remember where we started. We don't explain this stuff in terms of mere science. Nor does Leviticus. These are also physiological realities which derive their meaning from the woman's unique, glorious, doxological, rather than arche, inaugurating meaning. Why? Here's the snapshot version. The seven and the 40 days of the blood flow in Leviticus 12 and 15, in connection with childbirth and a monthly cycle, are not tied to actual physiology. As every woman in the room knows, these numbers do not correspond with reality in terms of something like it was and now it's not anymore, instantly. I woke up on the next day and because it was day seven, because it was day eight, all is well. It doesn't work that way. Well, this was true, of course, for ancient Hebrew women as well. Why then would these numbers be so strict as they are as seven and 40? But of course, because Leviticus is leading us to do something when we read our male and female bodies. It's leading us to connect what is transpiring in the woman's body to the biblical accounts of creation, the flood, and the exodus. The seven days of creation in Genesis constructed the world so that it would become a habitable and potentially fruitful environment. So the day and the night and the land and the seas are all ordered in relationship to one another and the waters are kept at bounds, divided from the land so the land can appear and therefore prove fruitful. Holding the waters back means fruitfulness is now a possibility. And on and on we might go. The 40 days of the unbounded flooding in the flood narrative reverted that fruitful creation to a state of death or lack of fecundity, no fruitfulness. The end of the 40 days marked the start of a new creation, a new order of life and fruitfulness. The Exodus event was itself understood by later writers in Scripture as the birth of Israel by way of the birth canal of the Red Sea, which is divided, and Israel, the Hebrews, make their way through, through which waters of death and life God's child passed unharmed and was born, constituted as son and, at, and as bride at Mount Sinai on the other side. In these ways, Leviticus is teaching us to see the woman's body in the unique way a woman is not a man, uh, not as shameful and not as embarrassing, nor as merely a natural phenomenon necessary for reproduction but as a microcosm of the story of the world, which story is told every month as a reminder of what we are for, 
and to whom we ultimately belong, why we are. A monthly telling of the story of creation and then fall and death and fruitlessness and redemption and recreation and final, hoped-for, anticipated, perpetual fruitfulness in the new creation of eschatology. Her body of life and death and back and forth is the constant monthly retelling of the meaning of everything in relationship to our maker. That was number seven. Number eight. Adam and Eve are not created simultaneously in Genesis chapter two, you remember this, but in the important archaedoxa ordering. Adam is created first, the original human figure of the arche. The eternal son will be imaged in a distinct way by this man who is the priest of a garden sanctuary and and who is husband to his wife at the same time. Eve is not made when he is or the way he is. She is made second, not first. Not because she is inferior to Adam, and there are too many Christians historically who have thought that, but exactly to make the opposite point. Because biblically, what comes second is actually closer to what is ultimate, closer to our end. It's an eschatological second rather than first. Think of how Jesus is the second and last Adam. The church is in her own way a second Eve. She is made second because she discloses the reason for the first and she represents what Adam is for. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, She is the glory of Adam, the glory of the man, the doxa of this arche. He is made from dust, she is not. He is a man of dust, she is not. She is made from his side, from him. In fact, in the language of Genesis, built up from his side with this language used for the construction of a temple, a habitation of God's glory and presence, of which she is a figure. She's presented to Adam in a matrimonial ceremony and in her face he now realizes more fully than ever who he is and what he is for. She is his future. She represents what his future is. Not only because only through her will his name and life continue in the children she bears to him, but more fundamentally than that, which tends to get all the headlines, he inaugurates, she consummates. She is his glory. His opening word and work falls flat unless it is picked up by her and glorified in fruitful response. She is not him. He is not her. And they need one another in this doxological harmony of difference in keeping with God's purpose for everything in love for his son. She is his glory, 1 Corinthians, and therefore explains him at all. Number nine. The woman as figure of glory includes at its core her being visible and vocal. Visible and vocal. When Adam surveys the classes of aerial, wild, and domestic animals in search for a fitting match for himself, all of those animals are rejected. Even the domestic animals. 
Though they are all useful to him, and domestic animals are especially useful to Adam, for companionship as well as for labor, they too are rejected as inadequate to the need for his perfect fit and the one that he needs for himself. Why does he exclaim the way he does in facing Eve that now at last he has found bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh? One reason is that this passage is designed to show Israel perpetually why she must never succumb to bestiality in the way surrounding nations had. Animals are not our fitting partners, though this would prevail among the Canaanites and others. But the more fundamental reason for this whole story, in the words of one scholar, is that oxen can plow, but women can ruminate. Oxen can plow, but women can ruminate. Basically, women can talk back, and it's a good thing. Women can talk back, and it's a really good thing. In fact, it's necessary for this liturgical reality. Glorifying requires visibility and vocality. He speaks, he sets down a line, he originates, he inaugurates, And she talks back. She speaks back, restating his word or explaining that word, rendering it fruitful, glorifying it. So Eve actually is accurate when she explains the original command of the Lord she will have received through Adam, not misrepresenting it, but accurately representing it when she says to the serpent, we cannot eat the forbidden fruit nor touch it. She's not the first legalist. Adding these words, we can't touch it. No, Leviticus itself, in chapter 11 especially, in this repeated listing of the food laws, says in a regular refrain, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it. You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it. Eve is a good Levitical reader of Adam's command, of God's command. Oh, we can't eat it, neither shall we touch it. She interprets it properly. She explains it properly. She unpacks it to be fruitful. She glorifies the simplicity of don't eat it by saying that also means don't touch it. She's a theologian, not a legalist. She's doing what Levitical women are supposed to do. Glorifying women are supposed to do. Not stay silent in a corner, shut your mouth and do what you're told, but speak and be visible in glorifying and responding and in a fallen world also sometimes correcting the original word that she hears. As the book of Acts repeatedly gives us examples of women helping by doing things of that sort. Think now of the church's worship and her work of theology and interpretation of scripture. The Lord speaks through his representative figure on one side of the table and of the pulpit. The bride responds visibly and vocally restating and affirming, Amen, Amen, and explaining and restarting and repeating and in so doing glorifying the word and work of the true RK, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, Adam, and other, all other men. We need the woman's talking back. Not the disorderly form of it, of course. But we do need the well-ordered form of it. Not just to restate what has been heard, or even merely to more fully explain it. 
but in so doing to glorify and fructify. The final point, number 10. Being man or woman is therefore not less than being capable of reproduction, but is always more. Is always more. This is what sets us up for talking about masculinity and femininity in our next talk together. Being a man or being a woman is a biological, physiological reality. However much the sciences today want to suggest this is constructed, invented, self-asserted, self-affirmed, your body is a divinely ordered, reliable indicator to your identity. But that's not all it is. It's also a virtue complex. It's a cluster of character summonses. A calling that we are being summoned to step into. To embrace. Not to overturn in the name of self-promotion and assertiveness. In the biblical world of ethics and responsibility, this archaedoxa relationship, now you can use this words at the dinner table, right? This archaedoxa pattern for male-female relationships explains not only why ministers of the Eucharistic table should be, must be only men, rather than other models of explanation which talk of male superiority or male importance or female folly and all kinds of other absolutely unbiblical mischaracterizations of why this biblical rule is as clear as it is. It also explains why the faithful care and love for women is not identical in scripture, this may be surprising, as the care and love for men. It might help explain, for example, this disproportionate amount of attention given in Old and New Testaments regarding the protection and preservation of women, not nearly as much as men. Protection and preservation of women in three ordinary stages of life, without denying exceptions, of course. As daughter, all the laws about protecting daughters. As wife and mother, think about all those laws concerning inheritance rights and protection and even divorce certificates and related concerns, and as widow. The three ordinary stages of human life which focus so many various laws in the Old Testament are disproportionately high in quantity compared to any such concern for men. It also helps us appreciate that homosexual and transgender ideologies so popular even by default in our time and this month, are risking far more than matters of reproduction, ill-ordered politics, the loss of conservatism, or disordered romantic love. Our concern with them is driven by our love for our neighbors, for they are risking the very meaning of life as a whole not our political platform, and not our relative strength and culture, but why we are at all. And we love our neighbors enough to want them to know the satisfaction of being what we are called to be. In the language of Augustine of old, which you know so well, 
Otherwise, our hearts truly are restless until they rest in him. That meaning is caught up with the fullness of being either, not both, man or woman. A meaning that holds, though variously, from birth to death and beyond and which is suffused throughout all of life's stages, including those reproductive years for a woman, and when she has passed them. All stages with meaningful vocational, and not only bodily content. Because the one word that captures the reason for everything is for all these reasons and more, Amen. You can do your whole theology under one word. Amen. The church affirming and glorifying in word and everyday deed. The words and deeds of the true Arche. The eternal Son of God. For whom we are the object of eternal love. Formed in the infinite wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Precisely as man and woman. or Man or woman not to steal from us the hope and satisfaction in life we would otherwise have if we were something else, but precisely so that the purpose of our existence would bring praise to the glory of the grace of God as man or as woman. The most stupendously wonderful thing at the heart of the church's life and faith is this simple but profound truth that we are wonderfully, mysteriously, yet truly caught up in the eternal Trinitarian giving and receiving of glory. Glory given, glory received, glory returned. It explains why churches are so generous and hold their possessions so loosely. It explains why worship services look the way they do in their general pattern and structure. It explains why what we do on the Lord's Day is different from what we do every other day of God's week. It explains why our years look the way that we do. It explains why we look the way we do as man or as woman. But ultimately, it explains why being countercultural in the world such as it is is not a negative act of protest but a positive, humble embrace of something infinitely more glorious than any political platform could imagine and which only the church commends to the world. The glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who is so loved by his Father that you exist and every day of your life has the form it does, including the form of your masculinity and femininity to which we come in our next talk today, which I hope you'll come back for. Because I did get through 10, as promised. Shall we close our time briefly in prayer? Let's pray. In the humility that is becoming the children of the living God, we pray, our God and Father, that the simple yet wondrous thing you have told us in your gospel might be deeply, thoughtfully, charitably, yet strongly embraced by each one of us and by all. That we are to the praise of your glory. 
to the praise of the glory of the Father's love for his Son and the Spirit, so that we will know the liberty of not inventing our meaning, but discovering it in the fellowship of the saints and the worship of our God, in which we are more and more folded into the bliss and satisfaction of belonging to the dynamism and fruitfulness of the love of God for God. Lead us down this path of joy and honor, we pray, and away from all errors and dangers. Heal the disorder in our own hearts and minds, which we all suffer to some degree, and reorder us in keeping with your love and glory, which we seek in Jesus' name together. Amen.